This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm presenting tonight with Alexander Heller-Nicholas and Josh Nelson. Good evening to you both. Hi, hi. Good evening. Tonight we've got three films that are... I think the, the way I'm going to link them together is I'm going to say they're all about outsiders going into the spotlight to fulfil their dreams, to find redemption, or reluctantly so, to find a higher purpose, perhaps. We're going to look at the documentary Women He's Undressed. This looks at the life and work of costume designer Ori Kelly, who came from Australia to Hollywood to design many iconic costumes from the 1930s to mid-60s. Then in the latest film from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Paul Rudd plays an ex-burglar who is given another shot at life via a special suit that has the ability to shrink the, re- the, the wearer. The wearer. This all happens in Ant-Man. And then we're going to look at a recent DVD release of Meet John Doe. This is a 1941 film by director Frank Capra. It stars Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. It's about a down-and-out man who reluctantly becomes the voice of the common person. So we're going to end in Hollywood, and we're kind of going to start in old Hollywood as well with Women He's Undressed. Well, when I think of Gillian Armstrong, I don't tend to immediately think of her as a documentary filmmaker. I tie her name to things like My Brilliant Career, Charlotte Grey, La César Chénu, and Starstruck, the kind of 80s new wave classic that Josh, you and I are bonding about. It's an incredible film. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I managed to find it on vinyl about a year ago, when I was, and it has a pop-up of the Sydney Opera House oh, in the middle. It was uh, Geek Central. It, it has body and it has soul. Indeed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome, awesome film. I don't think of her as a documentary filmmaker. I really... She doesn't either, actually, for the record. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, she, I... she thinks of herself as a narrative filmmaker who sometimes does docos. This, I mean, this, I was surprised that her, her experience in documentary filmmaking went back so far, like back to the late uh, 1970s. Um, but in a way, and I think that this film's a, probably a good illustration of that, this is a narrative film as well, and I think that she certainly incorporates aspects of fictional filmmaking techniques in the telling of a real story. But we'll get to that more, perhaps. Um... She also did a really great doco a couple of years ago about Florence Broadhurst. Did either of you guys see that? No, I did not. No? She's an Australian designer, and I think in a way that was leading into this. There's a lot of similarities in that they're, they're sort of films about uh, a design practitioner um, and these bigger stories sort of circulate around these really interesting figures. So anyway, Women He's Undressed follows the life of Ori Kelly from his childhood in, childhood in Kiama in New South Wales. He's moved to the United States to pursue acting. He shifts from New York to Los Angeles and he's rise to becoming a three-time winner of the Academy Award for Best Costume Design. Now, even if you think you don't know his name, I didn't think I knew his name, but I do have a cursory knowledge of classical Hollywood film, perhaps maybe more than a cursory knowledge if I, if I feel so bold as to <laughs> toot my own classical Hollywood trumpet. I think you're allowed to, Alex. That's quite fine. <laughs> um, I was amazed about how much of this guy's work I knew. I mean, he's, he's just all over the shop. He's just in every film that I like. I mean, he, he did the costume design for An American in Paris, Some Like It Hot, 42nd Street, Now Voyager, Casablanca. He worked with people like Marilyn Monroe, Bette Davis, Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Stanwyck, Angela Lansbury and Jane Fonda, the last two um, who were interviewed in Armstrong's documentary. So while this basic biographical thread is in itself pretty interesting, what I like about this film is how it balances that with a much bigger story, and I think that's what the best cinematic or the best kind of screen biographies or maybe even written biographies do, um, whether they're biopics or, or, or a documentary like, like this film. Um, 
As an openly gay Hollywood design professional, Ori Kelly's experience from the pre-code period right through to the end of the so-called production code, when censorship changed quite dramatically in Hollywood, he lived through some pretty radical changes in public morality and experienced the hypocrisy around them firsthand in often heartbreaking ways. Now, without being a spoiler, I have to say that as a Cary Grant fan, after seeing this film, I'm not sure if I'll ever really be able to watch his films in the same way again. There's a lot going on in this film. It's not just the story of a local kid making it in Hollywood. There's a much bigger film here about about Hollywood itself, about film history itself. It's an incredible film. Yeah, there is. It's it's a quite a dense documentary. The further it goes along, the broader the scope of the documentary. Um, one of the I won't say issues I had with it, but one of the difficulties I had with this documentary was in the first probably five or ten minutes. There's so much going on, and it took me a little while to warm to the the style. It's also shamelessly parochial. It opens with two title cards. We have a quote from Fanny Bryce, who worked with Ori Kelly, I believe, and then we get what I presume is Armstrong's title card to the audience, introducing us to to him and his character, which. Which is the language of which is so Australian. It starts with he called himself a hemstitcher, yet he was really a Hollywood star. There's no voice, by the way. I'm just doing the media watch <laughs> styling. In the country he comes from, that's bloody amazing. But no one's ever heard of him! Uh, exclamation point. And I, I don't know, something about, maybe it's the cultural cringe in me, something turned me off. And there's also so much in terms of style. There's reenactments. We're getting bounced around from um, people reading out uh, statements by people like Betty Davis. We're getting interviews with Jane Fonda and Angela Lansbury. And the, the film felt like, for me, it took a while to start to find its its footing and work through the backstory of Ori Kelly towards the Hollywood thing, and then it seemed to settle down stylistically. Um, the strange thing about this documentary, given it focuses on a, on such a, um, a prominent costume designer and something two hundred eighty five films, I think is the is the stat within the film. There's actually quite. Well, there's actually very little discussion of the costumes themselves, which I found a little strange. The focus is not, I don't think, on the design work. It's not on costumes as art. Um, it's not on, I guess, uh, Ori Kelly as an, sort of a, a costume or tur in any, in any real sense. It doesn't really talk about the materials or the design process that, that is work. It's really, a, I guess, um, using Kelly's life as a stepping point to an expose of the unwritten Hollywood of the... Kind of Hollywood Babylon. Yeah, completely. Yep. I mean, the, the talk about lovers and bootleggers and, and mobsters and, and you know, the, the love affairs with Cary Grant and Randolph Scott. I mean, it's, it feels like it's... I hesitate to use the word tabloid because I don't think it's, it's as clear-cut as that. But it definitely, the broader focus feels like it's more on pulling back the kind of the sheets of, of that era and, I guess, giving us a story which is titillating in, in some ways, but is also quite fascinating and rich because we're so aware of so many of these Hollywood stars. I think the film is trying to do several things, and, and one, and I think it actually achieves um, them all quite successfully, and one is very much showing us how uh, Hollywood in this era, you could not be openly gay, even though everyone kind of knew the deal. I mean, a lot of these men had best friends who they lived with and posed and did photographic series with. Um, so it was, it was looking at how, you know, just stifling it was for this man who, who couldn't kind of express himself properly, uh, even though when he first arrived in America, he was in New York in the 20s and that was really receptive to, to him living the lifestyle that he certainly couldn't get in country New South Wales either. So I think it, it's doing that but I think it, it, there's a real strong sense of setting the record straight that this this man is unknown in Australia I mean, and there's a, probably a few reasons for that. One, he wasn't in front of the camera. Uh, secondly, he never really came back to Australia. He worked exclusively in Hollywood but 
you know, he, until Catherine Martin overtook him, he was the highest awarded Australian in terms of receiving Academy Awards. So I think the film is really trying to, yeah, set the record straight and say we've forgotten this extraordinary contribution to Hollywood. And as a country, we are a little bit obsessed with what we give to the rest of the world. And why have we forgotten this man who is also larger than life? And I, I really got a sense of knowing his personality through the film, which I, I really enjoyed. And I think... You're right. I mean, possibly it could have gone into a lot more depth about his design process and sort of what what he was doing with the clothes, but I don't think that was the film it was. No, no, it wasn't necessarily a, no, 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 a, a yeah. criticism. It was just something that I guess is, was was my fascination, given this is a guy who's, who was incredibly successful at a yeah. time when Hollywood was producing, like, studio. I think they mentioned that studios, on average, produce something like 800 features a year. Oh, crazy prolific. They do touch on the fact that he was big on um, sort of more... Classical styles and lines. He took away the, the frivolities of costume, and he was, you know, the, the reason Ingrid Bergman wears such kind of. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of a better word than simple, but very plain, minimalistic, minimalistic yep. clothes. Was well, you know he walked in and said, you, "With a face like that, you don't need a costume to detract. You just need something bright and white, so she radiates even more." You know, and likewise with Humphrey Bogart. You know, he just said, "The dude needs a white tuxedo or an overcoat." I mean, he's got a face that will carry the film. So he did that. And he was also very naughty with his costumes. Like you know, he loved showing a lot of leg. He there's a whole there's a wonderful section <laughs> where both Jane Fonda and Angela Lansbury talk about the focus he put on the breasts and Marilyn Monroe's boobs in what? some like it hot Jane yeah. reactions uh, Jane Fonda's reaction to Marilyn Monroe's breasts is, is something that will stay with me for a really long time how I mean if for no other reason Armstrong must have been so beside herself when because it's a really off-guarded moment isn't it it's Fonda's beautiful. not a big fan of doing interviews and I, I believe Armstrong got her incredibly relaxed and at ease and she talked so candidly about her obsession with oh, obsession's a bit harsh uh, with, no with, I think oh, obsession's yeah, fair with her obsession yep. with Marilyn I, I, Monroe's breasts I think in that film. without giving too much weight, yeah. the noise she makes when she acts out what she would like to do to Marilyn's ample bosom in the Some Like It Hot costumes uh, is worth the price of admission It's nicely edited, so we see the Wonderful. shots of Monroe in that costume, where you know you have to do a double take, because it does look like she's naked. Yeah. The costume is so sheer, and you wonder how he got away with it. Um, I do have to say, though, uh, Armstrong hates reenactments, and right. she would be horrified if we described what she does in this film as a reenactment, because she's very against them. And I think um, it's difficult because we don't quite have the language to describe the very particular stylistic device she employs. It's this kind of theatrical performative quality, which was, um, you know, she she had a a writer with a theatrical background work on it, and they also took a lot of it from the letters he sent to his mother. So what we see in this film is these very stylised, stagey reenactments with an actor playing Ori, an actor playing his mother, speaking to camera... In, in what looks like a film set, or often he's sitting in a boat, you know, it's very symbolic that as a boy he was photographed next to this famous boat in his hometown. And Josh, I, was, I think I had a similar reaction to you, where at first I was squirming in my seat, thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to last the, the whole running time of this film, because it's a... It's, it, it's a it's a particular style, and it felt very Australian. It kind of had that slightly twee Australian, at first anyway, um, vibe that I'm a bit uncomfortable and not a huge fan of. But by the end of the film, I was 100% on side with it. And I was thinking, it is so suitable and appropriate for this film, because this was a man who created a sense of style, and, he, you know, uh, he was part of a performative world. And it really won me over, and I, I went completely... 180 from not liking it at all to thinking what a perfect decision bravo for being so brave in doing that I went through a really similar process in that I started off thinking I'm really not sure about this and there was just some point it was it was 
I'm not, I'm not actually sure what specific moment it was, but suddenly I realised that I was really, really into this film. I suspect it when it gets, it's when it starts getting into the real material history. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about the focus uh, in this film is that it's not just a biography. That, it, that, that Although its engagement with costume isn't a technical engagement, like, like you've pointed out, Josh. Like, it's not really a kind of costuming 101. Um, yeah, look, maybe that's a really unfair Oh, no, I think, it's a, to... I think it's a really valid point if you're coming from that kind of... If that's something that you're interested in. Given that so not... many of the people interviewed are costume designers, mm-hmm. uh, I thought there would be some response to what what makes Ori Kelly's work significant and, and worthy of this attention. Not, yep. I mean, it's one of the interesting things, sorry to, to cut, no, cut you fine. off, is that um, just on the issue of parochialism, is that one of the people that's being interviewed, I think it was Anne Roth, says to Armstrong, hang on, so why are you doing this documentary? Is it just because you're from the same country as Ori Kelly? Which I thought was a really important inclusion, as if to sort of say... Oh, you really are making a parochial documentary and, and fair play, almost. That's yep. the sense I got like, from it. I'm proud of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and, and owning it. And it's that confidence that makes everything work. And I think that that's, that's why I use the word... I mean, all of these things are why it's more of a material history in a way, almost more than a biography. It's, it's, it's structured as a biography. Um, but I think that this focus on objects and the stories that objects can tell, whether it's the boat, whether it's clothing... Um, I've never been a massive costume geek for film. I understand that costuming does things in film um, and sometimes they look nice, especially in classical Hollywood films and especially the kinds of films that we're talking about. But to hear that kind of nitty-gritty, this is how they worked in terms of character and, and how they were conceived of with both the designer and the actor and sometimes with the director, I found that just fascinating, that, that these objects have a story to tell and they, they participate. And that, that, that whole idea of reenactments being a kind of being reconceived and it actually reminded me a bit of um my winnipeg the guy madden film from a couple of years ago yes that slightly performative aspect yeah, like yeah. we know that you yeah. know that it's, this it's isn't not real. classical reenactment no. it's, it's a it's a very stylized performative element that i don't know we really have the language to properly describe it but we have seen it before absolutely yeah. but it's a very much a case of we know that you know that this isn't real precisely um a very almost yep. pantomime i found the armstrong reenactments and i i, yeah. I, I did find them a little bit uh, kind of difficult, I guess, to start with. But by yeah, as as the film progressed, I found that they didn't. Uh, the didn't actors are really good too, which helps. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. With a sort of Fellini esque abstract quality. I mean, yeah. it opens with a lectern in the middle of a of a field with a lighthouse in the background, and then I think something like six women dressed in bright red gowns carrying a coffin across the field. I mean, it's, these are not typical reenactments. I think you're right. That's a, uh, probably a bit of misleading uh, comment to make. But just getting back to this idea of stories, the stories in this film are remarkable. And how can you not sit and just be in sort of awe of um, anecdotes about Betty Davis oh, bypassing gosh. the director with, with two sets of costumes or, as you mentioned or alluded to, Thomas, the photographs with uh, with Archie Leach, a.k.a. Cary Grant, and his home buddy, mm. uh, Ori Kelly, in their home magazine are just... It's like... I don't think I don't think the fifties or the forties were naive. It was just uh, there was a serious level of disavowal, cultural disavowal that was going on in that time. Uh, Women, he's undressed is on limited release at the moment. We should also say this is one of those films where stick around for the credits. There's quite a few oh, revelations, really definitely. delightful revelations that happen at the very end of the film and in the credits that are really quite a rewarding, rewarding payoff. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R One Hundred Two Point Seven FM. <laughs> Three triple R. Ant Man. Yes, if you've been to a multiplex in the last decade, you may have seen that there's been um, 
a very small independent studio called Marvel producing films at, at semi-regular <laughs> intervals. And look, they've finally got the cash probably through a Kickstarter campaign, to uh, put together another one of their little films, <laughs> this time starring Paul Rudd, who becomes, surprise, surprise, Ant-Man. Paul Rudd in this film plays Scott Lang. Scott Lang is fresh out of jail. He's uh, an ex-con. He's a, he's a burglar, but he's a burglar with a heart of gold, and he falls under the sights of a scientist by the name of Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas. Now, if you're a fan of the Ant-Man comics, you'll probably be aware that Hank Pym was the original Ant-Man and and a a member of the original Avengers. So here, that should already ring alarm bells in terms of where this film is going to fit in the ever-unfolding Avengers franchise. Look, the crux of this film is is really about um, someone taking on the Ant-Man suit, passing on from sort of father to a surrogate son figure in order to stop uh, a villain who has engineered a rival suit, Darren Cross, played by Corey Stoll from House of Cards. Look, this is a small S superhero film, and I think it's worth pointing out that because it's stylistically and tonally, I think it's very different to what we've seen so far in terms of the Marvel franchises. For once, it's not that the Earth is at stake and the all of the parallel dimensions and worlds that are uh, being threatened by some sort of alien life force. It's really about the family, and this film feels like a 90 50s sci-fi film with some heist tropes thrown in. We have the, the key family dynamic revolves both around it and is mirrored between Scott Lang because of his criminal past he's been estranged from his or now ex-wife and his young daughter and at the same time we have the Michael Douglas character in a fairly fractured relationship with his daughter, Hope Van Dyne, played by Evangeline Lilly, who's now running the Pym Corporation and still has a sort of a tire connection to her father. But, of course, the key element in terms of their fractured relationship is the involvement of Scott Lang, who seems to have been given the the preference to wear the suit of Ant-Man when she seems to be far more qualified. I have to say, I had a lot more fun with this film than I thought I was going to, particularly given that when they first announced Ant-Man, it was under the creative leadership of Edgar Wright, who I'm a big fan of, and Joe Cornish, who I'm even a bigger fan of, on the back of um, Attack the Block, a wonderful film from a few years ago. Sadly, they removed themselves just prior to production or primary photography due to creative differences, and that was basically about... They wanted a standalone Marvel film, that's what they signed on to, but after the success of The Avengers, that was never going to happen and Marvel wanted to tie this back in into the broader kind of amalgam of superhero um, narratives and franchises look I think this film works because of the 50s small scale styling particularly the miniaturisation sequences they reminded me of those 50s films like Them, uh, They Came From the Desert and The Incredible Shrinking Man when you have this wonderful sense of play particularly and Paul Rudd has the charm to pull it off of man, nature and, and dealing with the ant world in its many guises it is quite fun, isn't it? Um, I didn't realise that's why Edgar Wright departed, because he didn't like them trying to integrate it. Hey, look, it's weird. I, I say this every time we review one of these Marvel films, which is I kind of like these films, um, and I'm always sort of moderately excited, and still... Although I think we were spoiled last year. Like, uh, you know, I'm on the record by saying I thought Guardians of the Galaxy was fantastic, and I liked... Uh, what's his name? Captain... Winter Soldier. Winter Soldier I thought yep. was fantastic. Um, this is sort of a smaller-scale film, and look, I, I did enjoy it 
a lot. It never ticked into sort of loving it to the degree I really enjoyed those films. And I, 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 I really felt the Edgar Wright absence. Like, it, I, I, there were many, many scenes where I, I could tell he was probably there at the genesis of those moments and it just didn't quite have the spark to carry it over for me. But nevertheless, I did really enjoy this film and I did like the kind of retro-ish feel to it. Yeah, the, the, the miniaturisation stuff's great fun. I, um, you know, I've... The last few years, I've been rewatching all the old classic Doctor Who stories, and there's a 1960 story where they, they uh, called Pla- uh, uh, Planet of the Giants, is it? Oh God, this is this is shameless. I've forgotten the name. Land of the Giants, yep. something. But the, you know, the TARDIS materializes and it shrunk, and it reminded me of that just those really old school kind of uh, effects. And I think the film keeps it fairly tight. It doesn't try to overplay its hand and, and that kind of simplicity is, is really quite uh, um, um, lovely and then there's some very nice gags when you see the action in the miniature kind of um, s- sphere and then we pull back to see what's happening in the real size of the world and it's just so mundane it, it, you know, it, it's, it's cute, if you watch the trailer one of those moments is actually in the trailer and it still works in the context of the film Really interesting stuff here with the family. Um, it's a divorced family. That these are all broken, fractured families. But this is not a. It's not a comedy of remarriage. They're not trying to bring the family unit back together. I don't know if we've seen a mainstream Hollywood film actually kind of acknowledge to the degree that this film does, without making a big song and dance about it. That the definition of family is quite broad, and and some people now don't have parents who are married, and that there's no kind of pretense that the parents are going to get back together. I mean, that there's sort of uh, the kind of that sort of moral or you know that emotional journey rather is sort of more about reconciliation between the different people involved in this broken marriage learning to sort of carry on in each other's lives accepting the fact that you know the, the husband and wife are no longer going to be together that was dare i say it even quite progressive i thought um and, yet, and then you've got the these are father father daughter narratives i don't think we've really seen that explored to that degree either i mean normally it's you know the son carrying on the legacy of the father where these are both films about uh, men estranged from their from their daughters which is why i think it was a slight pity that the focus is on ant man and not and not the actual daughter. I mean, there is dialogue to acknowledge the fact that, you know, she was getting screwed over by not being given the Ant-Man costume and, and maybe in the future she might get a costume of, of her own. Um, I thought it was, a, it was a pity the film didn't take that further. But, um, yeah, really curious addition to the, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I actually kind of like the way it tied in, um, which is just an observation I'm going to make. For somebody who keeps saying they're not they invested in the whole arc, when they tied this into the other Marvel films, I was kind of excited. I got a bit of a, a rush. I'm not too sure why. See, I had the opposite effect. The, oh, you didn't like that moment? The, the scenes where um, they were mentioning the Avengers initiative and it was clear that they were trying to kind of bring this, or at least flag that they were going to bring this franchise into line with the broader ones, felt really awkwardly shoehorned into the narrative and the excuses for the, those scenes being there felt so sort of, oh, we just need any excuse to write this scene in. And they were the weaker moments in, in the film for me. The, the grand set pieces and the humour had Edgar Wright's name and Joe Cornish's name written all over them. And, and you're right, they had spunk and they had spark, but there wasn't enough of those. This film mm. feels a little compromised in, in that regard. I mean, I, yeah, I still... It's slightly diluted, isn't it? Compl- diluted yeah. is, is exactly the right term. But getting back to the issues you've raised about the, the family, I think it's what won me over even though it's a conservative family framework in some ways in terms of the choosing scott laying over the the daughter figure which reinforces that i guess the 50s significance but it's nice to see a film that isn't about the death of the father and the rise of the son which both marvel and dc 
uh, almost exclusively about. I mean, you go through the, the catalogue of superheroes, almost all of them result in the death of either the biological father and or the surrogate father and then reclaiming the place in the symbolic and taking that authority. This film does that, that in a different way. It explores a, dyna- a different type of dynamic and I think that is successful. But it's also 50s sci-fi in the sense that it's playing off institutions of authority in terms of the police force, science and corporations and we have those represented in both the family unit because the the guy who's taken Scott's place in the family is a is a cop who's a detective who's got an eye on this ex-con who wants back in on the family. Then we've got the corporation represented by the the kind of the villainous figure who's sort of pretending he's a scientist but really he's in it for the money. And then the Douglas character who represents science. And those three kind of institutions were really part and parcel of almost all of those 50s sci-fi films, particularly ones that dealt with either nuclear ants or nuclear wasps or you know that were threatening the city or in, in the case of the shrinking man the shrinking man who has to kind of battle his way in the in the wild and that i i guess maybe it's a nostalgia play for a different type of audience for Marvel, but it completely worked for me yeah look i think considering the kind of film it was and how it did have to get shoehorned into the marvel cinematic universe i think it sort of punches above its its belt i, I, I keep using small metaphors but i think <laughs> I, what critic hasn't used some kind of horrible pun about you know being a, a small achiever or something um and man it's on pretty much everywhere and um, i think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this character there's and make sure you stay to the very end of the credits because there's multiple cut scenes that they've shoehorned in now if you're a fan of the overall arc yeah definitely you want to stick around for all that i think we're done with phase two now aren't we are we oh very much so this is i mean after avengers 2 i think it's clear that we're moving on to the next set of avengers and ant-man like hank pym was in the original comics is clearly going to be brought back into the to the fray but I think we're done for this year. So no more Marvel films until 2000 and... What's Six, next year? 16. <laughs> You're listening to Triple R, where we don't know what the time or the year is. This is Plato's Cave with Josh, Thomas and Alexandra. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to take a look at Meet John Doe. This is a Frank Capra film from 1941. It stars Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck. This is not one of the more, more famous Frank Capra films, but I think it's one of the more interesting ones. I saw it quite a few years ago, possibly at a Barbara Stanwyck retrospective that the Melbourne Cinematheque did. I think that was the context when I originally saw it, and it's stayed with me ever since. I'm really glad to see it getting re-released on DVD to sort of have another look at it. So just quick quick background to Capra. This was made after his really successful 1930s films. I think the two standouts in, from that era are It Happened One Night and Mr Smith Goes to Washington. And look, Capra, he's, he's still remembered today for his high levels of sentiment, uh, the idealism in his films. And, you know, we look at some of his later films, such as It's a Wonderful Life, which is just kind of crazy sentiment, sort of bordering on, on saccharine, but it's a very much loved film. Capra was a political conservative, especially post-World War II. He was a strong believer in uh, American individualism, but he also had a real general, genuine belief in the power of goodwill between people. And look, you know, there is no denying the massive influence Capra had on creating the mythology of what it means to be a good American. I mean, when we look at films, even like Blue Velvet, kind of parroting the idealised suburbia, that was that's part of the mythology that Capra created. You go to Disneyland and you walk sort of through the Americaville part of the Disneyland theme park, that was built on the, the ideas of, of Capra. Um, 
Well, look, his early his earlier pre World War Two films do examine issues of inequality and political corruption, and especially so in Meet John Doe. The core scenario of this film is bizarrely, frighteningly and depressingly relevant to contemporary Australia. It's about a powerful businessman who buys a newspaper to exert political influence. Um, But first he has to cut a bunch of jobs. Barbara Stanwyck plays Anne Mitchell. She's a reporter who, in order to save her job, invents a sensationalist story about a man who is planning to kill himself in protest over the terrible conditions in society. Uh, He wants to avenge the average person like himself, and this fictional character Character she calls John Doe, you know, the standard name for sort of the unknown every person. Um, this becomes a huge story. Readers latch onto it. Rival newspapers are demanding it, it, the story is, is proven. And she finds a homeless former baseball player, played by Gary Cooper, and he quickly gets hired to play the part of John Doe. And uh, and during the, over the course of the film, John Doe's kind of fictional message of community engagement and solidarity takes on a life of its own and starts to actually affect social change, even though the spirit of what is essentially a socialist message seems to contradict the attitude of the newspaper owner who wants to use this message to get into the White House. It's a complex, tricky film. Now, look... Cooper and Stan, we can nail this film. I mean, their performances are outstanding, as are the really large um, supporting cast. But beyond that, this is a really fascinating film for the way it seems to reaffirm these American values, but sort of in this very cautious or conditional way. It looks at the way the media invents stories to sell papers and how that's often done with the encouragement of people with political and business interests. That's the major theme. But it's something the film is heavily cynical about. On the other hand, it seems to believe that the message that ends up being spread, regardless of its origin, um, can be a genuine message that's embraced and kind of, yeah, a force force of good. There's an extended scene in the middle of this film where Joe meets a small-town soda jerk who tells him about all the good deeds he and his neighbours have been inspired to do, and it's incredibly sincere, if not horribly saccharine and overlong by today's standards. Look, Meet John Doe is a really... I'm dying to hear what you two think about this film because I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around it. It's a, it's a weirdly double-edged sword of a film. Um, it's been suggested that it reflects Capra's own uncertainty at the time about where society w- was heading. It lays on the cynicism and sentimentality in equal doses in, in a way that's really difficult to reconcile intellectually. But the film somehow works. Never has a f- movie made me want to get shit-faced with a political scientist more than this one. I swear to God, <laughs> I really like it. I cannot get my head around it. Yeah, OK. Just just when I think I've kind of got a kind of conclusion in one direction, I kind of find myself drifting back in the other. From the outset, I mean, I, I adore Capra's films. I mean, um, or some of them at least. You mentioned it happened one night. He's a genius night. filmmaker, yeah. I mean, it happened one night is without fail one of my favourite, rom- I mean, not just romantic comedies, but one of my favourite comedies. It's mm. um, Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable. And, I mean, it's still unequaled. It's it's a dirty, sexy, funny little film. It's it's almost the blueprint for the screwball comedy. It really is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a masterpiece. And it's so contemporary even now. And, I mean, this is a very different film from from that. It's hard to believe in a way that it comes from the same person. And like you said, I think the big one that people know Capra for is It's a Wonderful Life, 1946 with James Stewart. What I found interesting thinking about that film in relation to Meet John Doe is that they both actually hinge around the same premise of the will the main character commit suicide on Christmas Eve or won't he motif. And it's almost like he was sort of testing out this idea in a really, really different way, which is kind of sick. 
when you think about it, and especially when it's linked to these really heavily saccharine, dearly beloved films like um, like uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Capra's so-called civic films, stuff like this and um, uh, Mr Smith Goes to Washington, they've always kind of sat with me uncomfortably. I, I think that they're, they're really good films, but, again, I've never really got my head around how I feel about them. I mean, there's something so flagrantly propagandist in movies like these. And, I mean, Mr Smith Goes to Washington, I, I love Jimmy Stewart. I'll watch anything with him in it. And I still, I still don't know how I feel about that film. Um, it's so overtly intent on, on conveying a very specific ideological message that I'm not necessarily receptive to. So I find it a really interesting experience. Meet John Doe is unquestionably a really great film. I don't think that there could be any real debate about that. But I, I just can't get my head around its politics. It starts off, like you said, it's almost like a critique of the media, like a kind of light-hearted rom-com precursor to films like Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, Network from 1976, or even Nightcrawler, if you want to stretch it that far. You could really kind of fit it into that trajectory of, of, of media critique movies, kind of almost like a, a subgenre in its own right. But then it sort of turns into this love letter for grassroots activism and Gary Cooper gives a speech that's sort of tonally at least it just reminded me a lot of his demented soliloquy in the batshit crazy uh, screen adaptation of Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead that was made eight years after this. Like, that's the Gary Cooper that I was seeing when he gives this big speech. Different content, but same intensity and same ideological propulsion, I guess. Knowing the history of this film makes it it should help me get my head around it and actually makes it more confusing. This was released six months before America entered World War II. From what I understand, it was intended as a kind of anti-fascist piece, that that, that was part of the motivation kind of propelling this film. But from a 2015 perspective, not knowing that, all I could think of when I was watching it was that kind of rebranded neocon idea of the noble lie, that it was really quite problematic in terms of that kind of Leo Strauss... Yeah, neocon kind of idea, and and that sits very differently from from I think what the film perhaps was originally trying to do. You can tell that I'm kind of hyperventilating. I'm getting a nosebleed just thinking about this. The only thing that I'm really positive about this film is that I love Barbara Stanwyck. I love her, and I love Gary Cooper. <laughs> I love them both. <laughs> no, I, I don't mind Barbara. I don't mind Barbara Stanwyck. She's all right. She's all right. Um, <laughs> Uh, my, as my partner will attest, she gets a little whiny at the uh, the end in that final <laughs> scene. She's like, just push her off. Um, but that's a little unfair, I think. Uh, look, I think this is a really interesting film, and for the issues you've raised, and I think Capra is a far more politically interesting figure than he's often being I agree. considered. I think the idea of him being the the rampant sentimentalist, the um, the God given idealist, I think is a little unfair. Even with films, I think it's worth pointing out with films like It's a Wonderful Life, the the plot point that I think people seem to forget and think this is the wonderful good triumphs over evil ending is that evil does not cop a punch at all i mean and that's what makes his films i think a form of tempered idealism which is what for me makes them such fascinating ideological works if you think about it's the banker who gets away with robbing all the people and and doesn't get touched at the end of it's a wonderful life spoiler Sorry, <laughs> you've had six, seven years. If anybody's years. alive, if he hasn't seen that Watch film. it this Christmas, because apparently that's what people do. Um, <laughs> and it's the same thing with this film. I think those institutions, going back to institutions, that's the catchphrase of tonight for me. Uh, you know, we had banking in, in It's a Wonderful Life. In this film, it's it's the media and, it, and it's the political realm. Again, even though we have the sort of the everyman figure who's the values and, um, and idealism circles around, those institutions still seem to come through largely unscathed. And I think there's, 
there's almost a hesitancy for him to unleash a critique. And that leads me to think maybe there is a sense of the conservatism brewing even at this early stage. I wasn't aware of the, his political conservatism later post-World War II until you mentioned it, Thomas, but I think that, that makes this film even more fascinating given the context of World War II and what's, a, what's about to take place. I think this film is interesting also in terms of uh, its later cinematic influences, one which, Thomas, I think you had mentioned a couple of weeks ago and I'd completely forgotten until halfway through the film, and of that course, is yes. The Hudsucker Proxy. Oh, I didn't even think of that, of yeah, course. Yeah, the Coen brothers quote this as a direct influence. And it is comp- it is, it's hard not to see that link. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, it's so strong. I mean, and now, what, what I guess what's fascinating from a political angle is the way in which the Coen brothers reinterpret... It's not just a clear-cut adaptation of this, and it's also very largely in- informed by films like His Girl Friday, and it has that Howard Hawks fast-paced dialogue that Jennifer Jason Lee nails in, in that film. But they turn it into a fairy tale. And I think that's a fascinating way to approach Capra in a contemporary context is does the idealism that exists in these films, does it have a place in in contemporary cinema? And as a contemporary audience do we look at this in the same way or can you look at it without, or is it just me my kind of rampant cynicism barging in and saying look there's you know how can we believe in this idea of the the every man that can change the world well yeah it, it's, it is definitely a case where I think you've got to think of the context of where it came from and it, it's important to remember I suppose that conservatism back in this era probably wasn't quite as crazy as we think of it now um, it certainly wasn't contemporary you know big L liberal party or tea party crazy or it was more kind of centre right than, than batshit crazy right um, <laughs> so I think you know Frank Capra was probably very genuine you, had a, you know the message he put out there was quite heartfelt and that's what I enjoy about this film because I do get a sense that he's wrestling with ideas in this film one of the really interesting characters is the guy a uh, character called the colonel played by the great walter brennan who is sort of uh, john's sort of traveling buddy i suppose kind of an old um a, a, an older sort of war-torn very cynical loner type who the entire and a lot of sympathy is placed on this guy as the kind of salt of the earth keeping it real type and his whole message is get the hell out of there disengage do not engage with politics um he's almost like a like off the grid kind of character which like- is yeah, which is a weird dynamic because yeah. that kind of going completely off the grid, that in itself is almost inherently ultra-conservative because that's just saying we don't want to engage, we don't accept the status quo. I mean, I find that kind of tuning dropout mentality actually quite... I'm not a fan of it. You know, people who say, I, I don't like any politicians, I'm not getting involved in the process. To me, that is saying, I'm just going to agree with whatever's happening and, and suck it up. And... And his character is kind of working in that way, um, and he's very sympathetic. And Walter Brennan was an extreme conservative, I oh, discovered was today, which really? was a little disappointing because I love his Westerns work. I mean, yeah. Rio Bravo, his character in Rio Bravo, among many other Westerners. Um, and yeah, if, if you can believe what's on the internet, and we'll take that with a grain of salt, apparently uh, he was very anti the civil rights uh, movement in the, in the in the 60s, which is kind of horrific. I'm kind of glad I know that after I've seen this film rather than before, because I think that would really have tainted my experience but with it, his character. Again, it's, it lends another very interesting political aspect to these films, which are, I think, far more murky and, and uh, 
um, enigmatic than what I think the general perception of Capra's work is. Yeah, and maybe that's why this film isn't as well known and as acclaimed as some of his other films, where the message is a little bit more straightforward or, or the message isn't so full on. I think this is a really complex film, grappling with some big ideological ideas, and, and that's why it's great, and I really enjoyed being able to revisit it. Uh, that's available now widely on DVD. Uh, you've been listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas, Josh and Alex. Uh, we looked at Women, He's Undressed. That's on limited release through Rialto Distribution. Ant-Man is on wide release through Walt Disney Studios. And we were just talking about Meet John Doe. That's available on DVD through Shock Entertainment. Uh, next week, I'm taking the next three weeks off, but Josh and Alex will be here and Cerise Howard will return. She's going to be back in the studio slash cave. Um, oh, sorry, Josh, thank you. I also wanted to mention we were talking about the Women He's Undressed uh, documentary about Ori Kelly. There is going to be an exhibition of his costumes at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image beginning 18th of August, that's around the corner as well so um, yeah, we, we may even talk about that on the show, we're definitely going to go and check it out This has been a podcast from Free Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio, want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au